This episode is sponsored by the brand new Space and Beyond box from Astronomy Magazine. We got to get some uh, echo on that, I think. Go to spaceandbeyondbox.com slash giveaway and you will have a chance to win a one-year subscription to the Space and Beyond box. (laughs) Welcome to What The If. Philip Shane here, documentary filmmaker, lover of science, practicer of, well, participant in the benefits of science. Aren't we all? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that sonorous voice you hear is Matthew Stanley. How are you? Uh, Very excited to be here. Coming to us from New York University. It's a very exciting place. It is. Oh, yeah. Well, mostly. Yeah. No, I went to film school there. It's lovely. And speaking of amazing people and places, our guest tonight is a longtime favorite of the of the what the if community, the world of ifers. Stand and cheer, Kirby Runyon. How are you, NASA man? That's right. Hello. Good to be with you tonight. <laughs> Coming to us from Maryland, where That's I right. where where my mother my mother. Well, my mother did live, <laughs> but uh, my other alma mater. No, <laughs> your other mother <laughs> just came right down to mother. Is uh, University of Maryland? I went there before I moved to. Well, doesn't uh, alma mater mean old mother? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I just brought it all down to one thing. <laughs> Kirby, you work worked with the New Horizons. Team present tense, yeah. Present still, tense, still yes. Oh, good. Yes. Okay. Is the now the last time we spoke, which was maybe a month ago, uh, yeah. it was in a lull. Yeah. So about a month ago. So when we were recording this on October first, uh, early September, we uh, despun the spacecraft, which allowed us. You know, normally we spin it for gyro stabilization, but we despun, used our hydrazine thrusters, and we did some imaging of dwarf planets. Uh, one of my favorite being Quayowar. You basically have to shove a bunch of marbles in your mouth and mumble, quawar, quawar, whatever. (laughs) And so nothing nothing more than a pixel, but um, it allowed us to get some observation types that we can't get from Earth because, of course, the spacecraft is in the Kuiper belt. Uh, Since then, we have gone back into spin-stabilized mode with the high-gain antenna, the dish, pointed at Earth, and um, we're we're downlinking that data now. Nice. That's exciting. Cool. And how long does that take to uh, downlink? Well, we've got some back already. Um, I think I, I think over the next few months we'll we'll continue to get some data back, and we're also taking calibration images so that we can know how to interpret the the science images of the of the myriad dwarf planets out there. I see there are some guys who on on Twitter I follow them who have specialized for many years now just because those pictures are the library of images that come from these missions uh, are available to the public. Yes. Right. And have, yes. have and and what they do is these are guys who specialize in like Photoshop and I don't know scientifically working on the images to also make them beautiful. Have have people done that with Pluto? I bet they have. Yeah, oh yeah. There's well, there are some uh, very hard color stretches of Pluto. Pluto just kind of is kind of this muted brownish pinkish salmon color to to your 
it would that's how it would naturally look to you. Uh, people have taken the infrared uh, and ultraviolet imaging data we have, and they've stretched the heck out of it. And they've, for instance, some have made these very red, white, and blue patriotic-looking Plutos. Uh, <laughs> if, if your country's colors are red, white, and blue, so that's U.S. and France and some others, uh, France, uh, Britain, but not as much as people are doing, for instance, with the Juno spacecraft, the Juno Cam orbiting Jupiter, where people have really done some psychedelic stuff because of course jupiter's got all these really swirly clouds it looks like you dumped a bunch of not just creamer but different colored paints in your coffee and then started <laughs> together and that's kind of what jupiter looks like especially then when you go crank up the color stretch in photoshop but yeah so all of nasa's missions um are required and do archive all of their image data on the internet so if you just google pds planetary data system pds NASA imaging or a PDS imaging node, uh, you can find vast libraries of multiple tens of terabytes and maybe more of planetary images from around the solar system free to use. Yeah, cool. it's amazing. And and you can even watch as they come in or, you know, they kind of appear live. You can watch them come in and show up on the website. Oh, cool. I guess they've gone, you know, maybe it's gone through some processing or something like that. But I mean, this raw images, it's gone through some conversion from whatever the signal was to make an image. But uh, yeah, you can sit there and look at it and they just start, J JPEGs start fl flying. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. So, oh, for instance, just because I'm on this topic and it's so awesome, the uh, <laughs> the Mars rovers, you can see like every image from every camera. So you can oh, see yeah. all the yeah, navigation cool. cams and stuff like that. That's so cool. Speaking of photographing a planet, our special guest planet tonight <laughs> is one of the least photographic, it, it, it's all kind of the opposite of Jupiter. Yes. In, in that <laughs> yes. way. And yet, when, when, when I say the name of the planet in a moment, people are going to say, well, no, that's, that almost is very picturesque. Just, just listen to the name, which is Venus. 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 And uh, we're going to Venus tonight. Venus is back in the news. Kirby, you're going to tell us why is Venus suddenly getting a little screen time, and then we'll introduce our if for the night. Michael Way uh, is a planetary scientist at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, uh, there where you are uh, in New York City. He's had uh, some publications out uh, doing numerical modeling about the possibility of being of Venus having been habitable for over 3 billion years. Oof. Now, Venus and all the planets are about 4.5 billion years old. So 3 billion years, that's a respectable chunk of time for a planet to have been habitable. And on Earth, we know that life took somewhere between 700 million and a billion years to first evolve, arising somewhere between 3.5 to 3.8 billion years ago, we think. So it's not implausible that a Venus with liquid water on its surface and maybe a carbon dioxide nitrogen atmosphere getting plenty of sunshine and liquid water oceans on the surface, it seems very plausible that, that even Venus could have uh, had life arise there. So it's possible that Venus, Earth, and Mars at one point may have all been habitable if they weren't actually inhabited? Exactly, yeah. All three of them could have been like ocean worlds, okay. planets with oceans directly exposed on the surface. At the uh, same time? Icy moons and dwarf planets have oceans underneath their surfaces, but... Earth is the only planet with, with water currently exposed, but Venus and Mars uh, likely both had both. Now, for Mars, it's hard because 
earlier in the solar system's history, the sun had a lot less luminosity. It was fainter and, and not quite as hot. And so, and yet Mars is even further from the sun. So heating Mars has always been a hard problem. So how did that actually happen? But mm -hmm. Venus, it's a cinch. It's uh, about, uh, Earth is at one astronomical unit from the sun uh, by definition, and Venus is at about 0.7. Mm -hmm. So it gets uh, uh, about double the uh, uh, solar flux that Earth does. So it's plenty bright and plenty warm there. Plenty of energy. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so in this abstract, this was at the European Planetary Science Congress just a couple weeks ago in Geneva that I was at. Dr. Wei talks about how uh, over about 3 billion years, uh, the, a rich carbon dioxide atmosphere could actually become reduced in carbon dioxide as the CO2 gets sucked up in the silicate rocks and forms carbonate mineral deposits. Uh, and the temperature would be around, you know, 40 to 50 Celsius. Which is, for those uh, dumb Americans among us, is uh, 100 so, What, 120, 140? Yeah, yeah. Like, yes, it would be not It would not comfortable. be comfortable. But... It would be uncomfortable, but survivable. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Like Arizona. Um, yeah, yeah like, like in the mid, at the hottest days in the deserts. Like, lay down on an asphalt parking lot in Phoenix in July, and maybe that's Venus three billion years ago. All right. All right. On a yeah, cool not day. So bad. Yeah. Yeah. So Venus could have been habitable with, with a respectable amount of water. And I think that's that's just that's fascinating in and of itself. So here's our if for tonight. What the if a Pompeii like archaeological site were discovered on Venus. This if could definitely use some language help. <laughs> <laughs> and by the time you see it online, I may have come up with a more concise way to describe that. But Pompeii, a lot of people are familiar with Pompeii. But maybe, Matt, you could tell us, what is what is Pompeii? What do we mean when we say So that? Pompeii, I don't know if this is actually specifically what we're going for, um, but Pompeii is the city uh, very close to Mount Vesuvius, where uh, it was unfortunately timed eruption, killed not only most of the population uh, of the city, but sort of layered the city under volcanic ash and various ejecta. Um, so the final moments of the city are sort of preserved in great detail for archaeological purposes. So we essentially have uh, an intact Roman city. And uh, since the the final sort of volcanic rush came uh, all at once, we actually have the final moments of some of these people kind of recorded in archaeological history, too. They were like, uh, uh, not to get too deep into the specifics of Pompeii, but it was like actually hollowed out. The, the the bodies were not there anymore, but they left holes in the ash. Uh, yes, sometimes. Yeah, that they could fill with plaster. And if you go online, you'll see pictures of models. But but even that is interesting. But also the city itself was incredibly well-preserved, the buildings and things. But what struck me was that, A, I've always loved the stories of Pompeii and fascinated by the architecture. And many museums in the world have, you know, sort of uh, things from Pompeii. I know here in New York, we can see some magnificent kind of frescoes that they had on the walls of their buildings. It's a place where there was a civilization where uh, it was destroyed because the environment 
went completely haywire and happened to be very hot too. So when I learned that Venus, you know, had been potentially habitable and was nice, and at some point became the hellish hellscape that it mm-hmm. is. Kirby, you are a geologist. Planetary geologist, that's right. Planetary geologist, right. And the Russians have landed. Yes, the the the, the Venera series mm-hmm. of spacecraft in the 70s and 80s, under the auspices of the former Soviet Union, successfully landed multiple times with robotic probes on the surface of Venus and sent us back our only pictures from and of the surface. Visible yeah. light images of the surface from the surface. Yeah. How long do those how long did those probes last on the surface of Venus? I think max about 90 minutes. Okay. Because the, the atmospheric pressure is 90 bars. So if you go one and a half kilometers deep in the ocean, that's the pressure crushing you, while the 400, 500 degrees Celsius atmosphere is baking you, while the sulfuric acid is dissolving you. <laughs> so do you want to burn, implode, or dissolve? You know, take your pick. They're all going to happen to you. No, well, that'd be a fun kind of race, right? How will you die first? The plague's all happening at once. Exploring Venus is hard. And the U.S. has sent a number of spacecraft there, the Pioneer. There was a, a series of Pioneer spacecraft that actually deployed balloons in the atmosphere. Uh, the Russians did the same. Uh, didn't take any pictures. Um, and then we had a Pioneer orbiter that uh, returned uh, radar images of the surface, of course, because Venus's atmosphere is so thick that an astronaut or a spacecraft in orbit around Venus or flying past can't see the surface. Uh, and so the only way to really image the surface is with radar, to punch through the, the sulfuric acid clouds, the yeah. thick atmosphere. And then the last U.S. mission ended in 1994 at Venus, and that was the Magellan Orbiter, and that was a, a radar mapping mission. And so the best images we have of the entire planet come from that mission from 1994 and earlier. Now, for geologists, that must have been to suddenly be able to see the surface of Venus, at least mapped in in radar form, was incredible because it was nothing but clouds, as far as we could tell. And then the pictures you get from the Russian craft uh, that landed, you know, they kind of rocks, but the pictures are distorted. It's really very close to the feet of the lander and you know there's not a lot to see so um is that planet entirely mapped now and are their geologists like devoted to looking at it well there have been it turns out it's hard to get it's hard to get if you're a soft money scientist who raises their salary through writing grant proposals to nasa uh (laughs) it's hard to it's hard to make a living these days just being a purely venus geologist so so people moonlight as venus geologists and they have their day job doing the moon or mars or something I love that moon. I moonlight as a Venus geologist. <laughs> I've met people who romantic. said that they went. That they went to Venus. <laughs> it's a. Pro- it's appropriately romantic for the planet representing the goddess of love, it which is. ironically mm-hmm. doesn't get much. So, you can imagine that these radar data sets at the surface of Venus have been milked for all they're worth, for all the images, all the analysis <laughs> you can do, and they have been. And so, yes, on one hand, we've mapped the entire surface at radar but only at a coarse resolution. So it'd be like flying over New York City and like, oh yeah, there's Central Park. But then like, oh, but what if I wanted like a map of Central Park? Well, tough, you gotta wait for the next mission. <laughs> and so, 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 you know, there's, we're lacking a lot of detail, not just in images, but also with composition and some stuff that we actually have to go there to sample. Like uh, a lot of atmospheric scientists are really into the isotopic geochemistry of the atmosphere, for instance. So there will be a planetary geologist, perhaps you, Kirby, who gets to go to Venus, you know, probably go down in like a a craft similar to what, you know, James Cameron and uh, 
uh, Robert Ballard used to go to the bottom of the ocean and uh, find the Titanic, for instance. Basically, a submersible to go down to the surface of Venus. Let's say that we found a spot to go to based on, you know, it's a, it, we, they got more and more detailed images of the surface and began to see things that looked like maybe there was a civilization there. Now, to be clear, our focus for this if is not so much an alien story, really, it's not, but it's to be able to talk about, and because I'm really curious, what it would have been like, this is all speculation, of course, but what it would have been like to go through a transition from what Venus was like to what Venus is now. So ah, let's imagine yeah. there are, okay. Pompeii happened in a day, so this is not going to be that fast, but I'm actually curious. So how long it would have taken is part of the interesting lesson that might develop. So we find a civilization, let's just say we find some civilization that uh, lived through this transition. How long might that transition have taken? Wow. Well, aspects of it, like in a Pompeii scenario, could have happened in minutes, but mm -hmm. other mm -hmm. aspects of it could have happened over a few thousand years, probably. So about 750 million years ago, there was a huge volcanic resurfacing event where what was on the inside of Venus quickly came on the outside of Venus violently and with lots of heat and destruction and chaos and mayhem. Yeah, I've and, been at that kind of party. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, and destroyed what was on the surface for the most part, we think. There, there is a terrain type called the Tessera terrain, and it's these really cool uh, etched slightly higher elevation, sometimes uh, lighter toned and radar images, terrain that might be analogous to ancient Venusian continents, whereas the rest of the planet would be more recent Venusian ocean floor if Venus had an ocean, which it doesn't currently, but it's the basalt rock that we ha also have on the bottom of our ocean floor. What time length would we be talking about? That? What, what would people have experienced if they were living yeah. on, on their beautiful planet? And it sounds like it might have been the volcanic eruptions that began this mass extinction? Well, the volcanic eruptions would have started as a tourist pole for certain places on Venus. Uh, <laughs> and, and people, uh, in their naive optimism, flocked to watch the volcanoes erupt. A little did they know this would soon be their demise. And so the Venusian tourists were then watching the volcanoes erupting. And if you were there, suddenly there'd be a, a, an enormous black cloud billowing out of a volcano drifting over you and burying you in very hot ash very quickly. But people further further inland away from the volcano would then, they would see that happen, all the ash raining out, and then they would see massive floods of lava, liquid molten rock about 1,000, 1,200 degrees Celsius, carving rivers of, of lava through the throughout the area, uh, starting to uh, drown the high-standing terrain in lakes and rivers of lava, new volcanic domes coming up everywhere. Volcanic domes. What? <laughs> Do they come out of nowhere? What, or are there mountains already that... You, you get it a, an erupting column of lava, and it would slowly, as the lava cools, it would form this shield-shaped dome like Mauna Kea, Mauna Loa in Hawaii, or like those Mons on Mars. And these things would form... And the surface of Venus is just like pimpled with all of these volcanic domes everywhere. If you're one of the last surviving t Venusian tourists 750 million years ago, you would uh, have seen volcanic ash cover everything, and then you would have seen rivers and lakes of molten lava kind of drown everything, with a few exceptions here and there, places that didn't quite get covered by the lava. 
the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would shoot up because all this carbon dioxide had been sequestered inside the upper mantle and lower crust for over billions of years. And the, the atmosphere would have gotten thicker and thicker. And of course, with more CO2, it would have been getting hotter and hotter and trapping more and more of the sun's light, cranking up the greenhouse effect uh, in a, into a runaway state. You know, I'm wondering if maybe the right analogy here is not Pompeii, but actually Easter Island. Because the the collapse there happens over some extended period of time, probably centuries. Uh, and one of the things we can see is their efforts to stave off societal collapse, even as their environment decays around them. Right? They come up with new strategies to try and prolong their lifestyle. What sort of things might the Venusians do to try and keep themselves alive as the planet begins to cook? <laughs> Well, okay, perhaps maybe they, they maybe they made levees to block the lava from coming over their real estate. Okay, yeah. And so so future Venusian archaeologists could then go and look for uh, for any levees that would have staved off some of the advancing lava flows. They probably planted trees to try to soak up the carbon dioxide. Uh, I think probably with limited limited success. There are some minerals, though, that are kind of a, a sponge for CO2. So maybe they would have, you know, there w people would have gotten PhDs in material science specifically to learn how to be better suck up and sequester carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Of ah, course, and you've also yeah. got the sulfuric acid that's also a byproduct from the volcanic eruptions. And so they're trying to, 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 to uh, decrease the amount of acid in the atmosphere, like an acidic vapor that kind of scalds your lungs. So you want to you want to deal with that. People would have been getting uh, like people's insurance plans would have started covering. Uh, really, there'd be there'd be laws mandating that um, not just pre-existing conditions, but also sulfuric acid burns in your lungs have to be covered by medical plans. That's a pre-existing <laughs> on Earth. It's it's really hard to imagine a a kind of global volcanic disaster. We, there are some you know the plenty of sort of. Uh, Discovery Channel type shows about apocalypse and potential apocalypse and uh, one of them being that Yellowstone, it, you know, could be a super volcano that blows up. But there was this thing was, isn't it called the Deccan Traps? Yes. What was that? Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up because that was the closest thing we have on Earth to Venus almost vomiting itself inside out. And that was an enormous and very protracted volcanic eruption that flooded. I don't, I, I'm, I'm scared to try to even quantify it because uh, I, I would guess the wrong number, I'm sure. But uh, the Deccan traps, the Siberian traps around the end of the Permian time that led to a huge extinction. These things were, they're called uh, large igneous provinces or LIPs, L-I-P's, large igneous provinces. <laughs> That's great. And uh, if you if you just Google the Siberian traps or Deccan traps, you can see uh, where now the the lava is solidified. There are now rivers that cut their way through it, and there are these vast plains of cooled lava in in like Siberia, northern Russia, uh, and elsewhere. And at the same time that an asteroid formed the Chicxulub crater in the Gulf of Mexico 66 million years ago, that often gets attributed to the wiping out of the dinosaurs. Probably in addition to that, what we know what was also happening was another very large igneous province, another big set of lips being emplaced through massive volcanic eruptions that we'd have no modern equivalent for. I mean, if you go back and you look at these pictures of the recent volcanic eruptions in Hawaii and a lot of real estate sadly being destroyed, I mean, just, just multiply this thousandfold and just have eruptions going off everywhere. 
that's what Earth's most violent and protracted eruptions would have been like. And then span that out over hundreds and thousands of years. And then multiply that several times, and you're starting to approach what Venus experienced 750 million years ago, and maybe multiple points throughout its history. Wow. So why on Earth would... Why on Earth? Or not on Earth. <laughs> you answered your own question. <laughs> why on Earth? Why on Earth would uh, no? I'm actually literally. Curious. I meant literally on Earth. Oh, do we know Earth. what caused these traps to erupt? And does that is that how we? How do scientists begin to try to figure out what caused this on Venus? So we really can't predict volcanic eruptions. We can only forecast a bit how we think the continents may continue to move in the future. Uh, plate tectonics is what controls most of the geology on Earth. We don't think Venus ever had plate tectonics. I've heard it may be described as flake tectonics, where every <laughs> so often the surface just kind of pops up as a bunch of flakes and violent volcanic eruptions and kind of turns itself over that way. But, but really, we don't think Venus ever had plate tectonics. There are also mantle hotspots, these plumes of hot rock that impinge on the bottom of the lithosphere, on the bottom of the plate. And that's what forms things like uh, Hawaii and, and, and Iceland on Earth, and probably is responsible for a lot of the volcanoes on Venus. So there would have been no way a priori to be able to predict these sorts of eruptions, probably, except until very close, until they got started, uh, until they were about to erupt with uh, increased seismic activity with Venus quakes and so forth. But I would say that the, the, the cause for this would have been the complexities of planetary interior mantle convection, of, of mixing, of hot rock kind of slowly churning uh, on the inside. And the unpredictable nature of that would have then led to these massive eruptions and releases of CO2 and sulfuric acid. I'm trying to get an image of it. Is it... Uh... Even with the the Deccan traps, uh, I'm not clear what the image was, or 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 what the Yosemite supervolcano eruption would be like. Usually, when I think of a volcano or an eruption, I think of a uh, and we talked about Vesuvius, for instance, Pompeii, a mountain with a hole like a smokestack in the top, <laughs> a hole in the top, and stuff mm -hmm. shoots out of it. So when we talk about these mega eruptions, is it like that, or is it more just like a huge hole opens up in the land and? Molten stuff just flows out. Often that. If you, you, you actually go on YouTube and you look for videos of the recent eruptions in Hawaii, you see these really scary pictures of roads and forests starting to crack open and then red glow coming out of that. And then, and then little blurps of red molten lava coming out. And then those becoming huge curtains of lava just erupting and destroying everything around it. So it's the ground opening up and lava just pouring out. This is scary stuff. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so it's not necessarily a giant explosion, right? Um, but be, rather but not necessarily. opening and seeping, which I yeah. think is actually a little more scary. Because like you said, in Hawaii, it's sort of the lava creeps forward in this inevitable kind of way. Um, there's nothing you can do about it. Right? You just right. flee. You flee. That's it. The earth opens up and hell is revealed. Yes. And on Earth, sometimes you would you would hear this popping and this explosion when the lava would reach like an, an underground aquifer or basically a well. And all of a sudden that water is reaching this thousand degree lava and just flashing into steam and exploding. <laughs> so the Venusians in their in Venusian Pompeii began to there was one day these things started happening. But as we said, in human terms, it wouldn't have been like the entire planet suddenly blew up. 
you, it would right. grow over the course of a thousand years. So we can imagine, like if if what's hap- if what happened there in Hawaii a year or so ago, whenever it would basically start and then just never stop, and then there would yes. be more. It's like oh, there's this global phenomenon happening where more <laughs> and more of the surface is opening up and lava, and occasionally those would be explosive. And other times right. it just, it's more like a, it can, so occasionally it's an acute problem and sometimes it's just chronic. You got chronic lava. <laughs> yeah, chronic lava. Problem. Well, that, yes. I mean, but I think that's actually an important way of, of thinking about the problem is that this happens over hundreds or thousands of years. The difference from year to year or presidential administration to presidential administration <laughs> is no big deal, right? It's not worth taking a huge amount of, of effort to do anything about. Um, it's only over long timescales that you notice things have gone wrong. But otherwise, the lava wall that's keeping you alive was built by your great-grandfather. So it's always been there. No biggie. Oh, it's interesting. So, so the site, the archaeological site that we may have found might actually come from somewhere in the middle of this period. It need not be the very first ah, explosion like Pompeii. Wow. It'd be like, well, okay, we adapted. We It's like a town, you know, there are places here where it's, there's flooding or for whatever reason. Also, you know, we've seen civilizations like the Mayans and stuff. People have to migrate sometimes if, mm-hmm. yeah. or yeah. you're talking about Easter Island. Either they were able to escape or the, their population just continued to dwindle. You know, at some point on Easter Island, they had to stop making those incredible statues. Easter Island is on my bucket list. <laughs> so the lava is going, but the air is getting, the greenhouse effect is taking over. Yeah, you're, you're, you're both adding to the atmosphere a lot, and you're changing its composition to be more and more enriched in carbon dioxide. So they were living through a runaway greenhouse effect, where here we talk about it, one that we're causing. Right. There, they it was just, uh, we don't know. Is it, <laughs> you know, maybe they... <laughs> Maybe they cause it. Maybe it's from them burning fossil fuels. <laughs> Over time, you, maybe you'd see their technology. So if you, if, you, if you kept digging at the Venusian Pompeii and found maybe an earlier city, an earlier city, maybe you could see evidence of their atmosphere being thinner and less uh, rich in carbon dioxide. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there weren't as many uh, 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 medical breathing devices. I don't know. And, <laughs> right. um, but but maybe you'd see evidence for, for for the changing climate as you as your future Venusian astronaut or or intrepid robotic explorer digs down through the layers of lava and other uh, rock types on Venus, um, and and see how the geologies change over time. And in fact, if you know, mm-hmm. slight, little bit more realistically, still speculative, but you know, if there were living creatures or you know, even if they were down to the plant level, maybe uh, that did exist on Venus, you would see in the geologic layers the civilization being you would see extinctions happening in the layers. Yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd see you'd see species existing and then that species would disappear in, in upper in, in, in higher uh, layers and higher stratigraphic layers. Yeah it would be interesting actually even within the city to see how their food sources change over oh, time. Yeah. Um, because the more delicate stuff is going to gradually go away. And again, they might not notice it from generation to generation, but by the end, there will be one hardy plant is the only thing that could still grow on this hellish Venus. Um, and that's all you've got. Eggplant. And it's made of people. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, that could have been, if it was all that was left, that could have been the last days of Venus. It tastes like chicken. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, so I've heard. Is it, if this is a theory, this is a real scientific 
you know, proposal. There's this paper. Maybe this is how it was on Venus. Habitable, uh, uh, habitable wet Venus, not not Venusian Pompeii, right? Right. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. But but that it went from habitable to hell, hell, yes. inhabitable hell. Suppose you got a chance through APL mm-hmm. and NASA, a chance to build a mission. Oh, cool! To go find relics of life. Mm-hmm. How, yeah. How would you do it? <laughs> Get to work on that. While Kirby is planning this incredibly sophisticated mission, gathering his uh, tens and hundreds and perhaps thousands of team members, (laughs) it seems like a good time to talk about our sponsor, the Space and Beyond Box from Astronomy Magazine. If you go to spaceandbeyondbox.com slash giveaway, you've still got a chance to win a free annual subscription to this box. You'll get four boxes over the course of the year. Each one of these has a different theme. The first one, uh, for instance, is, is the theme is the moon. It's got this awesome booklet full of information and stories and articles uh, from Astronomy Magazine all about the moon, so the history of the moon, the geology of the moon. Also, there's a globe of the moon that you can hold in your hand. You can keep the dark side of the moon on your desk. <laughs> there's also this awesome new thing called the Lunar AR Notebook, an augmented reality look at the moon. Put yourself on the moon. Put the moon on you. <laughs> yes. Either way. It's fantastic. Spaceandbeyondbox.com slash giveaway. Folks at Astronomy Magazine, thank you again. Spaceandbeyondbox.com slash giveaway. Check it out. And so build a mission. Probably a one-way trip. Probably want to go the robotic route here. Mm, okay. And also Venus has a lot of gravity. It's hard to launch off the surface. It's almost the same as Earth, a little bit less. Oh, so I, as a geologist, I'd want to go where multiple different types of terrain abut each other. And that would be kind of at the edges of the Tessera terrain, where they've been where this mysterious light-toned fractured rock has been flooded with these much smoother uh, flood lavas. Um, and then investigating that area could tell me as a geologist a lot about the geologic story at that location and by inference uh, uh, other places as well. I'd want to drill. I'd want to get down into different and older layers of rock to see how the geology and the environment was different. My geochemistry colleagues would want to look at such things as atmospheric oxygen fugacity and isotopic ratios of various elements, and they could piece together uh, natural histories from those data and tell us what Venus was like in the past. I have to ask, what is fugacity? I was hoping you wouldn't ask. <laughs> but it is right. That was the word, fugacity. And we yes, just, we that, have to look it up. Look it up. Thing. My colleague, uh, at a, one of my colleagues at APL uh, works on oxygen fugacity sensors Fantastic. in the hopes that one of them will go to Venus one day. Yes. Um, and uh, so right now, planetary scientists are writing white papers and trying to build community support for future missions to Venus. We haven't been there uh, in the United States since 1994 with the robotic spacecraft. The Europeans have Venus Express there right now. The Japanese have the Akatsuki spacecraft there. But those are atmospheric missions, and they're not really mapping the surface. We want landers. We want I want Venusian airplanes and gliders that are solar-powered and stay aloft perpetually, and Venus orbiters. Venus is easy to get to. It's closer than Mars. And it only takes one quarter the kinetic energy or only one half the delta V, if you're into rocketry terms, uh, to go from Earth to Venus as it does to go from uh, Earth to Mars. 
So Venus is easy to get to. It's easy to go into orbit. It's actually easy to land on Venus. It's just hard surviving because Venus's thick atmosphere is like a nice feather pillow that just softens your descent to the surface. You don't even need a parachute, really. Um, you'll fall slowly enough through the thick atmosphere. Basically, Venus is actually, it's downhill to Venus. It's <laughs> yes, almost literally. coming back yeah. to be a little mm -hmm. harder. Um, but now, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the, the air possibilities. That's something that people could do, right? You people, if we had floating uh, stations, the, the, can, do, can yes. we now build like blimps, zeppelins? Yes. I'm really glad you asked. So there has been a, a long-standing mission concept. It's never really gained much traction, but it's really cool to think about. And technologically, it is plausible where a human mission to Venus could descend into the atmosphere as they're entering. You know, they've got their heat shield. They jettison their heat shield. Uh, their parachute comes out to slow their descent. And then their parachute unfurls this huge blimp or dirigible envelope that then they fill with hydrogen. And you don't have to worry about the hydrogen exploding because there's no oxygen to react with it. It's a CO2 atmosphere. Hindenburg, so Hindenburg, Hindenburg two, you have to do Hindenburg, it. Hindenburg, yes, I that that name seems cursed. It though. has an unfortunate, <laughs> not a, it's cursed. A connotation there. I'm uncomfortable. There's with. a there's several overlapping connotations, all of which are bad. One of them <laughs> being New Jersey. So <laughs> that's a good point. New Jersey takes a lot of abuse on our show. <laughs> 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 but you could imagine like this dirigible with a human capsule on the bottom. And actually, mm. you'd be above the sulfuric acid clouds. You'd be mm. kind of hanging out at like an 80 kilometer altitude. The atmospheric pressure would be about the same as Earth. The temperature would be about 40 Celsius. So it'd be hot, but not unbearable. Mm. The, it'd be carbon dioxide. But you could, you could literally go outside on the porch of your Venus dirigible wearing only an oxygen mask if you wanted to. Amazing. An interesting thought is as the Venusians try to adapt to their climate changing, um, maybe putting their cities in the sky would be a better strategy than trying to hold back the lava. That's a that's a that's a fantastic idea. So we'd want to look for crashed airship cities somewhere on the surface as well. Awesome. That'd be pretty cool. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So at 80 kilometers altitude on Venus, the sky overhead would be kind of white. You'd see the curved horizon of Venus because you're at 80 kilometers altitude. On Earth, you would see a curved horizon as well. So you'd see that on Venus. Uh, and below you'd be rather featureless kind of yellow-white clouds of death, of acid death beneath you. You wouldn't be able to see the ground. No, but you could have a radar imager and you could. there are certain wavelengths in the infrared that can punch through and see through uh, those those clouds, and so you could see the surface also in certain wavelengths of infrared light as well. Interesting. You know, that's it. It's something we don't have at all. Like the idea that uh, you know, on Earth you can always see the ground. I mean, maybe those are clouds or something, but like you know, seeing the ground is not a problem all the way from anywhere. The moon. Yeah, it does not seem like an exciting thing. Yeah. All, what we have that's analogous on Earth is the bottom of the ocean. Ah, a place that's actually ah. harder to study than the surface of Venus. Nice. Okay. Interesting. So floating, living in the sky on a Zeppelin, let's say, of Venus, would be like floating on the ocean. Yeah, yeah, and trying to study the ocean floor from that. You could do it. The pressure at the bottom of Earth's ocean is, is greater than the pre atmospheric pressure on Venus. The temperature is, is, is no big deal, but it's the pressure and the fact that you can't use radar through seawater. Uh, you can't use radar through seawater. You can't, in fact, use any electromagnetic radiation to look through the seawater of the ocean floor. The only thing you can do is actually go down there to where you are close enough to image it with light or use sonar from very close range. Because if you're using sonar from the surface of the Earth of Earth's oceans to look at the bottom, your resolution is going to be very uh, pretty blurry.
So, so even still, as hellish as the surface of Venus is, it is more easy to explore that than it is even the bottom of our own oceans and the deepest parts. Wow. So much exploration to do. Now, the Venusians also, yeah, they would have developed like a whole flight program. I mean, they would have developed, if they got cities, then in between they would have had aeronautics and all that kind of stuff. The problem is that uh, what material do you Oh, so you, you mentioned that the Zeppelin wouldn't be dissolved, for instance. You're above the... Yeah, you'd be above the clouds. But they would have to get to it. Like, would they... Is there beneath, is there uh, room beneath the sulfuric acid clouds for them to have built cities where they didn't have to go through the sulfuric acid? Or was that mandatory? No, you, you would have to go through the sulfuric acid clouds. Uh that being said, it's not that bad. Uh, so I was being a little hyperbolic earlier. It's, ah. It is corrosive, but it's not overwhelmingly corrosive. Uh, things like Teflon, I think. We should send, We need to send out a new tweet to the Venusians. It's okay. Don't panic. <laughs> it's not so bad. <laughs> I mean, the acid's not so bad. Yeah. So you can survive the acid. I mean, your, your machinery can, especially for short term, sand out the rust every now and then. And you talked about people have missions. Uh, and I know, for instance, we have a flying drone uh, in development, the Dragonfly mission for Titan. Yeah, Johns Hopkins APL is building the Dragonfly nuclear-powered quadcopter for Titan. Oh, nice. I didn't realize that was you guys were building that. Or yes. APL, that's amazing. Uh, will you get to work on that? Uh, I'm not currently on the team for Dragonfly. Uh, I am one of its biggest fanboys, though, and I love the mission. <laughs> I have the t-shirt. So I'm on New Horizons to Pluto. I'm on the Interstellar Probe concept mission. Uh, other people are on Dragonfly. Other people are on DART, which is an APL a mission paid for by NASA. It's a NASA mission that's being developed by Johns Hopkins APL to deflect an asteroid. We're literally we're crashing into an asteroid and changing its trajectory um, to practice planetary defense. So we're just, you know, people are, are there's overlap, uh, but people are on different missions or on different teams. So I just don't have, I'm on, I have a lot on my plate and I actually don't have time to be on Dragonfly, but it's a great mission. Uh, and, I, and I enjoy following it from uh, down the hall. Totally. Matt, I volunteered you to be the first man on Venus. Oh, dear. Where do you want to go and what are you going to do? I would like to see what's left of the Venera landers oh, yeah. uh, from the 70s. Uh, because, you know, I sort of know intellectually they were crushed and boiled and burned all at the same time. But I would kind of like to see what's left of the first human attempts after all these years. Yeah. I think that's unique among the craft, right? Like the Martian rovers, they may kind of wither away through erosion, but they're not going to be like instantly destroyed. Yeah, for the most part, stuff will stay there for a long, long time. And like on the moon, it'll be in quite good condition for quite a long time. Some of them we have intentionally, like Galileo and Cassini, were intentionally plunged into their planets to destroy them, but this uh, was smashed. So is it possible there's life now on Venus? It's highly improbable that there's life now on Venus. And if, 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 this is what the if after all, <laughs> yes. if there were any life, it would almost certainly be perpetually suspended on aerosol particles in the clouds or in the atmosphere. 
where it's at much lower temperatures, much lower pressures, much less acid. Or maybe it needs a little bit of acid as maybe the the the, the solvent for, for life. Like we use water. Any alien life on Titan might use liquid methane. Maybe this needs a little bit of sulfuric acid moisture. But it's not completely impossible, but it's probably highly improbable. But there could be perhaps airborne life on Venus today. But I wouldn't bet on it. Actually, starting tomorrow, as we record this, there will be a meeting held in Moscow, Russia, talking about the future of Venus exploration with the proposed Russian Venera D, Russian Venus lander, that would go in a few years. And one of the things they're talking about is the possibility of aerosol-based life forms on Venus. That's good timing. By the way, speaking of the Venera thing... (laughs) It's kind of hilarious, tragically hilarious. But if you you can, I think it's on Wikipedia or wherever it is, you can read what happened to each of the Venera things. And what's incredible is to see the history of how they just, I mean, they were unrelenting. And the Russians were unrelenting. We're just going, go. They kept, they would send one, they'd figure out what went wrong, and they'd build a better one and build a better one, build, build a better one. However, for like the first 25 of them, <laughs> I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but. Every single one of them suffered a lens cap problem, which caused the whole thing to be ruined. The lens cap problem. (laughs) That's embarrassing. On one of the missions, a lens cap popped off. It landed on the ground right where the soil sampler was supposed to go get a soil sample, and it couldn't. All it could do was sample lens cap. (laughs) I think that may have been an early American cyber hacking thing. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised, actually, yeah. We had special lens caps put on it. I'm excited about our future missions to Venus, and I really do wonder. I mean, three billion years, so much time for life. Three billion years in Earth's history. After three billion years, where was life? What stage was that? That would have been one and a half billion years ago. So life was still single-celled on Earth, mostly living in the oceans, Although we had a significant, and a lot of that life was photosynthetic and was turning our carbon dioxide atmosphere into an oxygen atmosphere, oxygen content was a lot lower than it is now, but it was it was there and climbing in respectable numbers. And so uh, after 3 billion years uh, of Earth, there would still be a half a billion years before multicellular life evolved. Multicellular life, more than just single-celled organisms, is is less than or only a billion years old. And then you fast forward a few hundred million years, and then you get to the time period known as the Ediacaran, where a lot of complex macroscopic life forms, animals with very with with jointed shells and exoskeletons and muscles and swimming around and everything uh, became common. And then, of course, there was the Cambrian explosion 540 million years ago, where the amount of phyla just just exploded. That just evolution was just on a rampage, and every <laughs> phylum that has ever existed evolved then. And we've been more things have been going extinct ever since. Ooh, wow! So it seems reasonable to expect that, unless there was some very odd quote lucky event where life evolved more quickly on Venus. Most likely, what we're talking about being able to find there would be single-celled creatures. Well, man, it probably would have gotten destroyed with all the volcanic activity. Ah, so uh, that's a bummer. Yeah. So you'd have to go looking at the isotopes. Life preferentially likes light isotopes. If you give it, if you give life an element of 
element X, let's say, that's going to vary with by the number of neutrons in there, and they're all going to be the same element, but they're going to have different heavinesses based on how much neutrons there are. And life has a slight preference for lighter isotopes than heavier isotopes. So life likes a relative lack of neutrons. So you'd, you'd, so you'd want to look for things like that, or you'd want to look for homochirality, and if you if there were any uh, of the right kinds of organic molecules, which there probably aren't, but if there were, you'd want to look for um, some preferential left or right handedness of certain molecules. Oh, see now, Jeff Goldblum did not say life finds an isotope, <laughs> <laughs> but it does. That was it actually does. the first draft. That was the first draft. Yeah, I'm sorry, technical. <laughs> didn't have the same ring. <laughs> Spielberg was like, no. Nah. So there's lots of future possibilities for the exploration of Venus. And Venus is really on the way to Mars for a human mission, for a human orbital mission, or even just a human flyby mission. Humans, uh, you could do a human flyby mission of Venus where you go to Earth, Venus, Earth in one year. And you could test out everything you need for a Mars mission by going to Venus, which is closer. You get there faster. It's safer. And you can drop off lots of robotic payloads while the humans fly past. On top of that, the human astronauts flying by Venus could take joysticks and maybe like exo robotic exoskeletons and remotely control things on the surface or on the atmosphere of Venus in real time without the delay that comes from the planets being so far apart. So Venus is actually on the way to Mars for people, even though it's in the opposite direction. This is an opportunity. You know, I've never yeah, heard so. Elon Musk talk about Venus. I'm trying to make it. I'm trying to make Venus cool again. Hot. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hot Venus is going to be cool again. Uh, <laughs> Kirby, thank you again, as always, for these, these unbelievably vivid explorations we go on in our imagination here. Thanks to you. Do you have anything coming up that you want to talk about? Well, in a, in, a, in a couple weeks, you guys graciously had me on a, a month ago or so to talk about a mission concept called Interstellar Probe. And in just a couple of weeks in New York City, we're going to have the second annual Interstellar Probe Science Workshop. And members of the media will hopefully be there. So I encourage your listeners to uh, keep an eye open for news articles on uh, the, the science results from uh, Interstellar Probe Planning Workshop at the Explorers Club in New York City. Cool. And what APL craft are in the, in the air in, in space right now? So we have Parker Solar Probe that just finished its third close approach to the sun, gearing up for its fourth. Speaking of Venus, it uses Venus gravity assist to inch its orbit ever closer to the sun. We've got New Horizons uh, barreling through the Kuiper Belt, about to actually kind of exit the other side of the Kuiper Belt here in the not-too-distant future. We're 12 and a half light hours away from Earth right now with the spacecraft. Wow. Those are, those are some of the APL spaceflight highlights going on right now. Amazing. And for those who don't know, I think we can say it's, kinda, it's basically like the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, the JPL, of the East Coast. Uh, one could make that comparison. We we, <laughs> we, we are very proud to get to do a lot of planetary and spaceflight missions for NASA. Yeah. Well, I thought like a, there was a new director announced at, J, at JPL. And uh, one thing he was talking about was the new competition. There's all kinds of competition that JPL uh, has not had in the past. Uh -huh. one, one is commercial spaceflight, you know, in some ways. And the other was APL. I see. Well, uh, you know, it, it help, makes for a healthy ecosystem to have lots of spacefaring organizations. Yeah. How about you, Matt? Uh, things coming up you want to plug? Uh, yeah, let's see here. In the middle of October, I'm going to be lecturing in Kansas City and then Denver. 
Uh, you can find the full schedule on One Day University. And do those uh, talks have a title or is it just to say? Um, I believe these, I will be talking about Einstein. Ah, fantastic. I would just no imagine like there. a big marquee that just says Stanley. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody knows what that is. That's excellent. Well, come out and learn about Einstein uh, from Matt, who is an amazing storyteller, among uh, other things like historian. Kirby, you now are going to be the recipient of your third, is that right? Is this your third time or fourth time? This is my third time on the show. Thank you. Yeah. That's amazing. A triple, are, is, is Kirby our first triple puppet? I think that's right. Recep, oh, recipient. My. We don't, I'm honored to be the triple puppet recipient. Yes. Super we had super ifer. There was one recently, what was it? Was that our first double ifer? We had uh yeah, the mega ifer. Mega ifer. Exactly. You are Giga Ifer. Giga Ifer. <laughs> the first Giga Ifer. Kirby Runyon, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at NASAMAN58. And I also I'll plug my website, Kirby Daniel Space. Leave us a review if you haven't done that yet. Do it. Uh, and you can always contact us on our website, whattheif.com, where you can also find all our episodes and you can learn about who are these wackadoodles talking to you. And we are on Twitter at whattheifshow. And thanks again to our sponsor this week, the awesome Space and Beyond Box from Astronomy Magazine. Go to spaceandbeyondbox.com slash giveaway, you can enter to win a free annual subscription to the Space and Beyond box. Folks at Astronomy Magazine, thank you again. And now our closing ritual, which as you know, Kirby and Matt, you know. Uh, actually, Matt, you describe it. It, it. We haven't come from your perspective in, in a little while. What is going, um, what are we going to do now? Uh, what we are going to do now is essentially the lead into the movie trailer for What the If, um, where we get that, I don't know who it was, who used to do all those great voiceovers. Um, and then we'll hit the reverb button. <laughs> and why do we do this? What's our motivation as performers? Oh, in awe of the things that could be ifed next mm -hmm. time. Which we have no idea what it is. That's right. Could be anything. Could be anything. Hence the reverb <laughs> And here we go. What? what? The